This is the Innovation Engine podcast from Three Pillar Global, your home for conversations with industry leaders on all things digital transformation and innovation. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. I'm Scott Varho, Three Pillars Chief Evangelist. And for this episode, I'm excited to be bringing you a discussion with Paul Coben on how to drive a successful business transformation. Paul was Chief Transformation Officer at DBS Bank from 2009 to 2021, and also served as their Chief Data Officer from 2016 to 2021. Under Paul's leadership, DBS underwent a remarkable transformation that earned multiple accolades and was highlighted by Harvard Business Review as one of their top 10 business transformations of the last decade, alongside innovation stalwarts, Netflix, Adobe, Microsoft, and others. Paul is also the co-author of Eat, Sleep, Innovate, a book that shares lessons on how seemingly ordinary companies can do extraordinary things when equipped with the right tools, mindset, and habits. Our conversation originally aired as a fireside chat toward the end of last year, and we're happy to bring you a lightly edited recording for this episode of The Innovation Engine. There's a link in the show notes you can reference if you'd like to review the presentation Paul talks through at the beginning of our conversation. Without further ado, let's dive in. I'm really excited to to speak with you today, Paul, uh, about your learnings in leading this remarkable transformation at DBS. So, Paul, welcome to the Fireside Chat, and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. And the way I just think we should just spend the time we have together, what I thought I'd do is is just go through 10 minutes of kind of context, tell a little bit about transformation at DBS and, and specifically uh, what I learned from it, and then we can dive into the Q&A, if that's okay. So I'd like to start with a, a true story. Um, that On my very first day at DBS in 2009, I got into a taxi, and I said to the taxi driver, can you please take me to DBS? And the taxi driver turned around and looked at him, and he goes, ah, oh, DBS, damn bloody slow. Because at that time, DBS had this reputation all being slow. We, there were queues outside our branches, there were queues at our ATMs, there was long waits at our call centers. Our employee engagement scores were rock bottom. Our financial results were at best mediocre. And part of the reason for that was that DBS had been set up about 50 years previously to help this new, this new country called Singapore develop. In fact, the D in DBS originally took stood for development, Development Bank of Singapore. And so it was a government institution that's highly bureaucratic and hence had this reputation. But by 2016, we started winning awards. In 2016, in fact, we were the first bank to win the world's best digital bank. By 2018, we'd become the first bank in history to hold all three best bank in the world awards by the, the financial periodicals. And as Scott mentioned, the one that I'm most proud of is the one down there at the bottom Winning the, you know, being nominated or awarded by Harvard Business Review as one of the top 10 transformations of the decade, alongside companies like Netflix and Amazon and Microsoft. And for me, having been in the seat for that period of time is a very proud moment in my career. On the left-hand side is Vish Gupta. He was our CEO. He joined a few months after me in 2009. And here he is on the front cover of Euro Money magazine in 2016. Now, there's me on the right. I didn't make it to any of on the, any magazine covers, but I did get this front seat view of this transformation. And that's what I, those lessons is what I'm, I learned along the way is what I'd like to share with you um, in the next, next few minutes. So how did we go from being damn bloody slow to the best bank in the world? Well, the answer is that we went through a series of different transformations, each one built on the success of the previous one. We just gained, gained confidence. And obviously I don't have time to go through each of those in turn. Um, but, but what I can tell you is the one biggest, the biggest single insight I got having gone through this was that uh, transformation is about people. You know, and it sounds obvious when you say it, but so few people seem to understand that and, and design their, their programs around it. After all, a company doesn't change unless the behavior of its people changes. You know, that quite often people would come to visit us at DPS and, and the companies I work with now will say, tell us about your technology architecture, because we've been through this massive transformation in our technology. And we're very open, we show them our technology architecture, but quite frankly, it's the wrong question. The right question is, how did you, on earth did you uh, motivate your developers who are working on your legacy platforms to 
learn the skills and have the motivation to create this, this transformation into a modern stack architecture. Now, if you say to some people that uh, transformation is about people, their response is, well, let's get rid of all the people who don't kind of understand it and get new people on board. We never fired a single person at DBS for not getting on board our transformation. You know, and I feel that the CEOs who come and see me and tell me proudly they fired half their team because they just don't get it have demonstrated leadership failure. But a leadership uh, role here is to create the right conditions for change to happen for everybody who wants to come on board. You know, after all, 99.9% .9 of people come to work wanting to do a great job. And what I have learned, again, looking backwards to the benefit of hindsight, there are three things that leaders at DBS did better eventually, uh, not always at the beginning, eventually better than some of our competitors. And I frame them into, into three, three, three areas. And the first is that leaders need to paint a compelling and vivid picture of the future. Again, you would not believe the number of times leaders come to me and tell me they're undergoing some digital transformation or other kind of transformation. And when I ask them, what does their end state look like? They just can't tell me. There's just a very loose definition, a very woolly words. And more often than not, you know, when I ask different people from the same company, I get different answers. If you haven't got this vivid picture, then it's really hard to empower your people and really create a, a big set of an army of people, if you like, who are motivated to, to attain them. And we did many things at DBS to really create a vivid picture up front. Um, back in 2010, we created this newspaper, the one on the left here. It was dated five years into the future, 2015. And we described uh, in painstaking detail what it was like to work at DBS in five years' time. And we handed it out to everybody in the company. And it was one of the many things that we did that really helped build this picture. As it happened in 2014, we revisited this newspaper and it kind of, we realized we had attained most of the things that we had actually set out to do. And we felt that we could move on to the next phase. So guess what? The next phase was really focusing on digital and we wrote another newspaper, again, dated five years into the future. So it's just, you know, other, you know, a lot of the companies have done similar things, but what set this apart for me was the detail in which we went to each of these times we did this. The second of the three is, and the one that I think most people just don't think about at all, is to create a climate for change. People don't resist change. Companies do. Now, you may argue that companies are made up of people, but people are also made up of processes and, and policies. And a, a lot of that time, they are designed for inertia. And similarly, people resist change in companies because of some kind of fear, whether it's fear of the unknown, fear of losing their job, fear that they can't do the new type of job. And again, it's the role of leaders to create this environment where people, that, as much of that fear is, is, is eliminated so people will get on board. And we, we came up almost by accident with an approach um, that really worked for us about how to, to programmatically change the behaviors or culture of a company. And it was based on some of those early transformations that we ran which were successful. But when we look back at it, we reverse engineer this programmatic approach, which we, called, which we called culture by design. And the way culture by design works is that you, you define your future culture very precisely. In our case, we said we wanted to be a 27,000-person startup, and we articulated in detail what we meant by that. And then you identify the blockers, the things that are preventing us becoming like a 27,000-person startup. And then you try experiments or countermeasures to overcome those blockers. And if they work, that becomes a new way of working um, in DBS. And when I, around about 2016, I convinced uh, our CEO to, to spend a day on our two-day manager, the top 250 people came together uh, every two days, uh, sorry, every year for two days. And I convinced our CEO to spend one of those days going through a culture by design session where we articulated very precisely this 27,000-person startup, and then we, we said, what's the biggest blocker getting in the way? And what these leaders said, almost unanimously, one surprised me and two disappointed me, because what they said, it's our meetings. We have too many, they're unstructured, there's too many people at them, there's no outcome, and we spend our time doing that, and it's not allowing us to do those things we're talking about. And so we came up with a, a, a ritual or countermeasure um, to address this, after a few experiments didn't work, we came up with something called Meeting Mojo. So 
today, if you go to a meeting at BBS, there will be a MO, and a MO stands for meeting owner, and the meeting owner has to do three things. Firstly, state the purpose of the meeting at the start. Secondly, state the uh, summary at the end. And most importantly, ensure there is equal share of voice during the meeting. Mo also appoints Joe. And Joe stands for Joyful Observer, which is a nod to our vision of making banking joyful. And Joe spends 30 seconds at the end of the meeting saying how well Mo did those three things. When we implemented this, and we had a lot of fun doing so, um, as you can see, we have people dressed up as Mo and Joe and jumping into meetings and saying, who's Mo and who's Joe? But when we implemented it, the effectiveness of our meetings doubled. And we estimated we saved around about half a million employee hours as a result of implementing this because our meetings were much more effective. But more importantly, we had figured out how to programmatically change the culture of a company. The third of the three is this idea of breaking the challenge down into manageable chunks. Again, executives who come to visit or talk to me now often say that they've been tapped on their shoulder by the CEO and said, I've been told, make our company digital or something equivalent. And they feel overwhelmed. You know, how on earth do I do that? And it's good to have bold visions and, and ambitions, but you've really got to break the challenge down into manageable chunks so people feel they know how to make the first step. And as you saw, we broke it down into a number of different transformations. But more importantly, each of those transformations were what we call T-shaped. So drop out the T, go wide, lower the barriers for entry, encourage everybody in the organization just to have a go. Don't get hung up about our outcome, just reward people for participation. However, there's then there's a deep part of the T where you pick typically five to 10 areas where you do care about the outcome. You, you apply management oversight, you, you apply resources and invest. And this pattern we repeated time and time again. Each one of those transformations you saw applied this pattern. And for us, it really worked. Not only did we get the outcome, we built transformation muscle that enabled us to go from transformation to transformation. The other thing I would say about uh, making it easy and breaking things down to manageable chunks is to make sure you have bandwidth in the company. Again, quite often I see people position transformations as something uh, leaders are, are expected to do and people throughout the organization are expected to do on top of their day job. That doesn't work. You need to either stop stop activities and or create a dedicated team. And I'm hugely biased here because you know this is my job for 12 years at DPS and here's me with my team. Um, and our job is to take the vision of the company and turn it into these executable programs and coach the rest of the company as they perform the transformation. And so there you have it. There are the three kind of leadership imperatives that I see that leaders driving transformation uh, should consider if they want to have a successful transformation. And with that, I shall um, just come out and share my screen and we can go to Q&A. That is an incredible story. I have so many questions um, myself uh, to get things rolling. But, you know, and, and, and I think your slides sort of capture this, but I'm curious how you would describe the, the process by which you, you come up with a, a map for navigating a transformation journey. Um, why these sequences, um, for example, like what were some of your criteria in choosing these different areas to focus on um, so methodically? Yeah, it'd be very easy to draw a map now. Wouldn't it? You know, looking backwards, <laughs> this is the map we came to. But, but I, I can assure you, we didn't have a map at the beginning. And again, one of the things that when I speak to people driving transformation, what I say to them, you know, don't worry about plotting out the entire course. You will not have a clue. We didn't. All you need to know is what that end state is, um, as I mentioned, and be able to design that very first step that will take you. What that first step obviously will be very contextual, but pick something that is important to improve. And more importantly, actually, is, is you can do it relatively easy. Because what we found through the first series of, of our transformations, we made a big difference in that first one, which is operational excellence. We went from bottom to the top of our, the customer SAT scores in Singapore in one year. You know, and that gave the company this, this confidence that there was, uh, we could do it. And then that, from that, we were able to build onto it. But I would say, you know, the old cliche, you know, you need a compass, not a map. Um, it's probably true here. But I think just focusing on the very first step uh, is probably the best advice I could give. Well, and, and and it strikes me that 
kind of the subtext there is that momentum and faith these very, very human aspects, as you talk about, like it's rarely about the digital, it's more about the transformation, which is a, a focus on people. But that momentum and that faith that, yes, we can do this, the, the confidence that how important that is to to buy in that moves you through all of the different stages of transformation. Um, that seems to be, a, a, that, that comes through to me, at least, as a, as a clear subtext in and what you described. Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't even say it was subtext. It's front and center. It's the, the thing that I learned. And again, quite often people's driving transformations look to see what's a big project. Whether I want to change this computer system, you know, and put a project around it. When what they should be doing, if they want sustainable transformation and change, is okay. What are the? Let's talk about the people. Who are the people who are going to do this? How are they going to be equipped to understand what they need to do? Are they into it? Are they, you know, are they bought into the whole process? And, and that's what I mean. You've got to get that right um, mm-hmm. to have an ongoing transformation that really fundamentally changes the culture of a company for the better. The other thing that, that struck me when, as I looked at the newspaper, that, that uh, concept, which I think is such a powerful, it's so powerful, and yet I also think easy to get wrong. Um, I'm curious about when you're choosing the level of detail to put in that newspaper, that five years in the future view, that needs to be vivid enough that people can connect to it and say, yes, okay, I get it. And they, they, can, they can really buy in and envision it but also not trying to be so uh, predictive of the details of exactly how that's going to look in reality, right? Like choosing the right altitude. I, I immediately was was curious about that process because it, it has to be concrete enough, but not too, not too prescriptive. Yes, it, I, I would err on the side of being into the detail. There's no rule that says you can't change it um, halfway, you know, as you learn. But most people make mistakes being too vague, right? And so, you know, I would, Say how much detail can we have, um, and you know, if nothing else, it forces the conversations. It says people will argue about things, and, and then, and by the way, that isn't an exercise you should do in the dark room on your own. You know, that's a that's a top fifty people in the company bringing that together and debating it, um, uh, and, and then finding a way to get more buy-in as you go through the. For the organization. Um, what I would say is, and I cut, I cut that a little bit short because of time on the slides, but the first step is the understanding. You know, I need to understand what this future looks like. The second thing, and you just touched on it, Scott, people need to buy in, and that needs, therefore it needs to be compelling. And it doesn't necessarily, the newspaper thing, again, one of many things we did, that doesn't necessarily address the compelling. You know, that's other things such as, you know, focusing on purpose. We've, you know, early on, one of the mistakes, well, not a mistake, it just wasn't optimal. We, we were talking a lot about fintech. You know, fintech is coming to eat legacy banks lunch. We better get going because otherwise we won't exist. That kind of rhetoric, you know, that's the, but we, we found that instead of that, when we started saying, you know, uh, we wanted to be this much more of a purpose driven uh, company, and that's why we should do this. People bought into that and a lot more, more fundamental level and were willing to come board. Well, and one thing that uh, so we actually had a question related to this, so I'll I'll read the read the question, but it 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 hits on a on a topic I might want to dig in a little more with you. So the question that came in was, what types of communication did you use to get everyone on board with the transformation and paint a picture of where you were you are going? Which I think we were just referring to one one of the tools, but if you want to expand on that, but, and then I'll I'll do the second part of the question. Well, the answer is every possible form of communication that we could think of. The third person I hired into my transformation team was an ex-journalist. And I had, uh, we, we were running kind of improvement projects and every and there were five-day workshops and we ended up running 250 of them. But every time she would be there writing a story about it and then you know, putting it out there, you know, so everybody we could hear about it, um, you know, do videos, etc. You know, and we got to the point where people were complaining to me, it's not another story. And you need to stop sending the stories out. And I said, you know what, the fact you've kind of caught that point pleases me. So, you know, if you inundate people's communication, people will complain about it. They did. But the point was that it's giving the, the perception, uh, the right, correct perception, there's loads happening in the company, and therefore it must be important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, the corporate signals are really important. So I referred to the, you know, this annual meeting of the top 250 people in the company. But early on, we used to, like most companies, we'd use that to talk about strategy and show results. And, you know, everybody was completely bored. And we stopped doing that. And we used those two days 
to teach our top leaders how to drive transformation. And it was became mm. my team's turn to get on stage and teach people. Um, and, and not only was that useful in its own right, but again, what a signal. This is the most important thing we talk about when we get together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and a lot has been written about the power of storytelling. It's really interesting to see how you capitalized on on storytelling to generate momentum, buy-in, a sense of progress. Um, I mean, these are some of the it's uh, that, that that's really impressive. And and I have to assume. And and uh, the, another question that came in was what what was the relationship between you and as the transformation leader and the CEO navigating the change. Um, and the and and that headline of what success looks like, were you aligned from the start, or or how did that evolve? Uh, it's actually interesting noting in your story that the CEO arrived after you, so which is which is interesting as well. Yeah, and he gets all the credit. What's that anyway? <laughs> um, but yeah, moving move that aside, no, I, had a, I mean I had a fabulous relationship with the CEO. He's a tough guy. He was, you know, he was completely bought in, and he was his vision and you know, he's kind of bringing his team together work on the vision and then our partnership came in you know where I would be the guy who then would take the vision and turn it into these executable programs I got very lucky in that I'd already started that work when he came on board and he saw what I was doing liked it and then just got right behind behind me and he's you know the things that I, he's why he became such a great partner was I would go to him with these crazy ideas, um, the same crazy or similar crazy ideas I've, I've been to previous companies where I've been sold 20 reasons why they won't work. And his response were, you know, he would give it some thought as it was how crazy is it or not. But, you know, nine times out of 10, just go do it and see what happens. You know, mm-hmm. and that's what you need to do as a leader. You know, just let's see what happens. I, you know, don't, you know, one of the things I, I think transformational leaders need to have as a trait is intellectual humility. I, I might be wrong here, right? And so uh, that, yeah. and then once you, once the program's in, in play, just to get behind it and sponsor it. So every time the town hall, talk about it, be there for the governance meeting. So when we, we get the, the leadership together and, and we see progress, you know, he would be the one who had helped me you know, point at some of the areas where John aren't progressing quite so well, because they're not maybe putting enough effort into it, you know, and he would, he would, you know, tell them that's what we needed to do. Otherwise, without that, it becomes very difficult as a transformation mm-hmm. leader. Um, so I, ha- I did have it easy. You know, I was very fortuitous in having a great CEO. Yeah, well, I, and, and it just, I think it underscores how important it is to have that unity, even as you're, uh, you're, you're intellectually humble enough to challenge one another and, and to realize that, you know, we don't, it's not like we have a recipe to follow here, right? We're figuring this out as we go. But you have that level of trust and buy-in um, uh, and, and unity around purpose uh, that that is so critical, I think, to to a unified execution on something of this magnitude. So, with that, and and maybe you just gave it, but uh, but is there any particular advice that you would give to someone just below the C-suite who is looking to accelerate uh, digital transformation in in their company? Um, that's a very context-driven case. Uh, and what depends, uh, just for on this topic, about how much sponsorship you're, you're getting. The, the single biggest thing that's going to speed you up is the degree of sponsorship. And what I advise people is to think, is trying to assess where they are on a spectrum of complete skeptic or complete evangelist, right? And the further down, and I call it the skeptical spectrum. And if you're at the wrong end of that skeptical spectrum, the best way I found was to do things by stealth. Find pockets of the organization where you'd have support, get some success, and then you showcase it like crazy, right? And so that's mm-hmm. what we mean. Sure, do you want more of this? That, that's the approach. The thing that slowed me down, and I got wrong more than once, which is a bit embarrassing to say, is not getting alignment at that top team. So even if you've got buy-in, which I enjoyed, what I didn't sometimes do enough of is making sure they all understood the, the nature of the, the work we were doing, or if it was a more complicated concept where they fully understood it. And then what happened, of course, they all were very good intent, but all went to different directions. And then I was spending all my time just trying to herd these sheep back in. And that, that slowed me down. So, so sponsorship speeds you up. Lack of alignment slows you down. So make sure you get those things right with the, a couple of things to watch for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I mean, personally, just adding, adding my own view on this, I, I have found the, the ones who are outwardly supportive but inwardly skeptical 
Um, they feel like they need to be supportive of, of the change that's that's being put in front of them, but ultimately are 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 feel threatened um, or or feel that this is a path to to nowhere. Those are those are the toughest ones to root out um, and to get to. Um, yeah, because the ones who are willing to engage. Yeah, in the we call those the, the box tickers. Yeah, we, we call these the box tickers. The other ones that yeah, I've done all that. Tick tick tick. But underneath is you know, yeah. To, and we've figured out a few ways to expose that in a without ruining relationships or embarrassing anybody um, unless they do it continually. But you know, there are different mechanisms of doing that. One of the things we use like, extensively is maturity models. You know, so this is not something we expect you have to have done by next Wednesday. In fact, this is a multi-year journey. This year, in level one maturity, these are the things to look out for. So it's mm-hmm. saying two things here. One is you're saying, you don't say you've done already because you can't possibly have done because there's too much to do. Secondly, here's a very detailed list of things that we're going to be looking for just to, to demonstrate that you're not just ticking a box. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that change is actually taking place. It's not performative. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's really interesting. The one, the one. Um, oh, we've had a few more questions come in, uh, and I'll jump to those next. But the one slide um, that really stood out to me because it's something that we we've, we've struggled with here at Three Pillar. We're going through some of our own internal transformation right now. Is is that experiment and then codify and that that codification piece, taking the things, the experiments that work, and then operationalizing them, making part of the integrated operating system of the business as it moves forward. A lot of innovators forget that part, the codification piece, that you do have to go deep, uh, not just broad, but also deep on those on those changes in order to make them uh, an enduring part of the organization you're trying to build. How did you where like how did you realize that? Was that just in, in just well known to you, or or was that an insight that uh, that you stumbled into? Yeah, well, that that was a whole conversation that sparked that culture by design piece. Was my background. Had been in operation improvement, and I'd studied extensively Toyota processing system, and they had a concept of standard work, where standard work was this codification of the best, best known way to do something. You know, and I remember touring a, a Toyota factory, uh, I don't know, ten years ago, and there was a, a sensei there, you know, who was screaming at some supervisor because their standard work hadn't been updated in less than six weeks, which meant that they hadn't found a way of improving. And that stuck with me. You know, so what is a standard work for any given area of business, not just operational elements, but in this case, culture? You know, and so that's what we, it was the inspiration for it. And it was a, a conversation in a bar with Scott Anthony debating this topic about whether, whether this transition from operational concept to culture was possible, which spurned the, the experiments that we did, which ultimately uh, gave birth to the book. Hmm. That's fascinating. Excellent. We have another question that came in uh, while we were talking. In the banking world, we are typically shackled with lots of technical debt in legacy systems that we need to transform. How do you prioritize where to start on the system side? Well, that's that's an easy question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, So the way it was for us, when I joined in 2009, 2010, we, the the CIO had just joined as well, and he had taken over from the previous predecessor who had been uh, let go because he had proposed uh, a mainframe update, you know, in a big one lump. You know, his proposition was that we were going to come in one, one Monday morning, switch all the mainframe off and, and put in a new system, which is just suicide, as most people would realize. <laughs> what the... What the well, the new guy, the guy called Dave Bertel, which is just a, a fantastic driver of, of transformation and technology, realizes you know that we needed to break that problem down into these chunks that I talked about. And he had a, a phrase: we need to take boulders, boulders into pebbles. And you know, so we just nibbled away at functionality and and shifted onto the new platform. Um, the second thing that we did, which was probably the biggest uh, help, the thing that was getting in the way of solving technical debt. Um, just give that context, was that the, our business partners never saw the value of it. And there was always a bun fight and saying, you know, no, we need new functionality. The tech guys, no, no, we need to hear the technical debt or invest in security or whatever. And we, we didn't make too many big organizational changes over the last decade, but the one we did was we moved to a platform structure where a platform is really just a group, logical grouping of applications. But most importantly, um, they were led by a two-in-a-box structure one guy from the 
business and one guy from technology, and they were given the same KPIs, the same budget, and the same strategy. But this finger pointing, you know, stopped literally stopped overnight, and and, and it was recognition as a bank. You want to be a digital company. You just can't have that. You know, it is business is digital. You have to be as a leader. Have to be able to make these trade offs between technical debt, security, performance, and functionality. You can't just outsource it to the tech guys. And that kind of a, a system system level kind of was the biggest step forward. Uh, oh, how to address my, that my, issue. my heart is is uh, exploding. It's this is yes. I, I as a former product leader myself. Um, I, I never thought that I was able to ignore all of those uh, those technical items. It, they accrued to the product that we were building, and so we needed to make those decisions and trade offs jointly, uh, and and hold hands and, and live with the risks. I mean, you're obviously writing risk um, at some level, um, and uh, and so that that's that's uh, that's really great to see that 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 change took place. And and I do and I agree with you that. That is such a critical thing to change the from the finger pointing to the we have a shared outcome we're trying to drive towards. We have our tools, we have our teams, we have the system in our current state. How are we going to optimize that state for to to move us towards the the future? And and I think you get a lot more out of out of uh, you know joining hands as and going down that journey and, and sparring over what is the best uh, set of decisions. But the other thing that I, that is interesting to me in, in the question itself that that's a little bit flawed is. I used to tell my team, like, don't ever give me a, an epic that is purely a technical debt story. Uh, we're going to improve unit test coverage across the entire code base by 20%. Like, that is not interesting. What is more interesting is the business has told us that this is where we're trying to go. This part of the code base is really valuable. So how do we redo that part of the code base around where we see the architectures and the, and what are the modern concepts that we want to apply? And let's apply them where the business has told us there's value. Uh, if you know there's gold in the mountain, it's worth digging. If there's no if there's no gold, don't start digging. Um, and so, so kind of using uh, the conversation with the business about what's important next. I call it product opportunism, but it's pay, let's pay down the debt where there's value, uh, not pay down the debt where there isn't. And so, I, I also I found that to be really really helpful because it helped empower teams to yeah, you can improve your your context, use the campsite rule, leave it better than you found it. But let's do it while we're always addressing what the business has told us there is is a high priority and and has a future future value for the company. So it's a little yeah, absolutely extra. agree with that. Yep. Another question that we got was what role did did marketing play in in the transformation to shifting hearts and minds uh, in the market, uh, especially since you were you were dealing with the uh, damn bloody slow. Uh, uh, starting point. Um, so, how how did you bring marketing in on this, or did you? Well, absolutely, uh, a, a great partner as we went through the journey. And very early on, we came to this decision that we would tell the story of the transformation publicly. And to be honest, we were selling the story before we had much of a story tell. You know, um, but what we what we discovered almost by accident. That when we we said, you know, I would stand on the stage and say how amazing our you know first transformation was, and then you know Singapore is a fairly small place. If it's doing in Singapore, you know somebody you know get back to the employees of DBS, and and for some reason when they would heard it from me, even though it was, you know I said the same thing internally, when I said it externally and they heard it through this other route, it had more credibility, mm-hmm. and and also it started building our ability to talent, you know, something's happening here. Um, um, and so it was a very conscious uh, decision to, to do that. Uh, and mm-hmm. of course, you know, we could only do that if we had some degree of success. So it helped massively that we went from the bottom to the top of the customer satisfaction scores of the year. You know, we just played that story time and time again, you know, and, and, it, and it wasn't like people had noticed. We was going around, you know, people used to be embarrassed about working for DBS, you know, and and all of a sudden, there was a little bit of pride, and people started telling their story. So it's kind of this virtuous circle uh, that we set up. That that is fantastic, and that's a lesson I think that as is, uh, is is really important for is one that I've learned here at Three Pillar. Our, our you know our reputation on the market actually, in addition to attracting talent, is actually really great for motivating the talent we have. Um, and we have some amazingly talented people, but when they feel that sense of pride that uh, of working for a company that's making a difference. Um, it's 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 a really powerful motivator for for our folks internally as well. That's great. Just a quick reminder to the audience: I am I am taking questions. Um, I, I have uh, I have someone helping me here uh, make sure that I address those questions in order as they come. So 
uh, please keep them coming. We had someone uh, uh, drop a, a, a statement rather than a question um, saying there's nothing worse than when customers take your, your company's acronym and create derogatory names for it. So yeah. I think that's a bit of empathy for, for what you were experiencing in the tag. If you were to give uh, DBS a new, ac- a new meaning uh, as far as an acronym, what would you, what would you choose? This feels like an unfair well, question. Um, I, <laughs> it, well, I, I have to. I mean, my creativity is enough to have certainly not spontaneously. But what I can tell you about two years ago on our annual reports, you know, we were supposed to be Development Bank of Singapore. We dropped that because um, we thought it was a bit uncool. Officially, we're just DBS. We obviously had Sam Buddy Slow. But a few years ago, our annual report was Digital Bank of Singapore. Um, so that that was kind of we felt we've won the accolade, all the accolades, so we were entitled to say that. It's not an official rebranding, but that was how we positioned that in the report. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it it is wonderful. I mean, the obvious uh, uh, connection back to the back to the newspapers, right? And and where you were going and what you're trying to accomplish. So another uh, one of the concepts that the book covers was your quest to become an, an invisible bank, um, quote unquote. Can you share a window into into what the the means? and the 250 process improvements that you implemented in your quest to become invisible to your customers? What what, what, what does that look like? Yeah, so um, when we started thinking about the future of banking, you know, and started doing these process improvement events, you know, there was a, a moment where this wake-up call of it as a company. And it was the fact that, you know, actually nobody at, does wake up in the morning and say, hey, today's a great day to do some banking. Come on, everybody, let's do some banking together, which is how bankers were thinking. You know, there's a center of the universe. And, and therefore, we realized that in order to be if making banking joyful, which is our, was our vision, we needed to make the banking part of any job to be done, to use the Clayton Christensen term, invisible, you know, disappear. And we, because it was around about the time when Uber started happening, and in the first time you get out of an Uber cab, you have to make that payment. You go, that's what we mean, you know. And so if people are buying a house. It isn't all about the mortgage. That's the annoying, frictional bit. But how do we make that disappear and make it seamless and frictionless? And so we've done the 250 process improvement events. And one of the achievements of those was we took out 250 million customer waiting hours in a year, right? So mm-hmm. now that you figure out what that means. There's a lot of waiting time that we, we just eliminated. <laughs> In fact, if you go back in time 250 million years, you end up in the Stone Age. You know, and you know, people really did notice a difference. There's a lot of time. But what we had done at that point is we kind of taken a very inside-out view. And there was one PIE that we ran, and it was uh, replacing a, a, a lost credit card. So if you'd lost a credit card, you could take five days for us to replace it. And we were thinking, if you don't have a DBS credit card in your wallet, you can't use it, therefore bad for us. We did the process improvement then. We uh, were successful, and uh, we reduced time from five to one day. And then we did something we hadn't done before, and we phoned a customer, and we said, Madam, how did you like getting your credit card back in a day? And she goes, yeah, fantastic. Where's my debit card? I lost my handbag in a shopping mall. And, I, and so this is a moment we realized, you know, we've been getting this all wrong. So anyway, so we, we had this insight, and we pivoted. I got lucky that... Uh, somebody from my team had just joined and you had to do human-centered design and it was before human-centered design was overly popular. And he, he had us going into shopping malls and speaking to random people, listening to customers, etc. And we ended up making um, three changes to our script because at the in Singapore at that time, it's pre-digital. You know, if you lose your wallet to handbag, your first problem is how am I going to get home, as we found out. Second problem is somebody using my credit card fraudulently over there in, in Gucci shop. And, and thirdly, is you know I've got a lot of work to do to reconnect all my credit cards, etc. We made three changes to our call center script. Firstly, we um, we said, "Are you okay?" We, we empathised, as opposed mm-hmm. to going straight into the authentication questions, which the implication was you are a criminal unless you prove to us otherwise. Right? So we empathised. Mm-hmm. Then we simply said, "What, what the process we were going to take them through?" And at the end, we said, "Can we send you some useful phone numbers to help you get your life back in order?" No investment in technology, just those simple changes. Um, but for, but the customer stat score for that customer journey went through the roof, right? And so we realized we needed to pivot from these in, kind of inside-out process improvement events to customer journeys. And we ended up running 650 customer journeys before I stopped counting them, right? It was just crazy. Everything just went wild, wildfire. Um, and again, we were on stage at this 
annual conference teaching people how to uh, run customer journey projects. But which is, I mean, that the in inside your story is is a fascinating, um, I think, insight into into how you were doing this because you know, for you to share the insight, like, oh, you know, we got your credit card back to you, but you needed a lot more than that. That insight ha- implies a feedback loop to you as a chief transformation officer where you would you would understand, like, wait, we've we looked at this wrong and we need to we need to approach it in a fresh way. I, I my perception is is that a lot of projects get sponsored with the, you know, that KPI gets set. We're going to reduce the time to replace credit cards from five days to one day, and that gets hit and it's a successful project and you move on the opportunity for feedback is not there. How, how did you, how, how did DBS and how did you build that feedback loop in, in order to, to then say, oh, we've, we've actually reframed, we have to reframe the problem. Yeah. I wish I could say, you know, I'm a genius and I, I kind of figured it out, but it took me 250 PIEs before I kind of got the idea. Right. But what, you know, so you know, we hadn't done that and we were doing exactly what you were describing. Um, the good news is we we're building up muscle. I mean, we're still improving customers' lives, and we're happy with that because we're just reducing waiting time. That's right. But then it was this again, this moment that we said, "Let's do it." And I, I, I can't even remember why we did it on this particular occasion. I think we were just gloating. We were so happy. I was trying out what customer thinks. They must. They're definitely going to love this, aren't they? You know. And so I think that's probably what happened. And you know, expecting mm. the, the first part of the answer she gave, but not the second. And then that was kind of hit us around the face. Um, you know. We should have we should have figured it out a lot earlier. <laughs> well, that's uh, yeah, and that's uh, yeah, it is it is the most common thing that I see is we want more accountability, we want more execution. Um, we we have these thoughtful insights where we want to improve the the customer journey, but we don't we don't mining for the continuous discovery of insights. Um, and that's that I think it's really hard to get that right, uh, especially as leadership in large organizations um, because. Bidirectional feedback loops are expensive, um, very difficult to run. Interesting. So uh, let's get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of, of how you made the transformation happen. Although I'd say we've we've been in the in the weeds already somewhat. But in terms of some practical tips, so what does the acronym Bean stand for, and and how did you uh, employ it at DBS? So Bean is B A I B E A N stands for Behavior Enabled um, Artifact and Much. And so if you remember on that diagram. Um, we talked about uh, the culture by design slope. We talked about the experiments. You know that those experiments are what we call, and in the book we call beans. And so it's, it's something that nudges you to do a different uh, into a different habit. And we just stole the idea directly from all the habit forming literature. You know the micro habits, etc. But applying it in a corporate sense. You know, so Mojo is a is a great example of a, a behavior enabler. We, the artifact, you know, in the, in our meeting rooms, you know, were pictures, you know, just stickers of and on of of, of Mojo. So we'd have a chair and have a Joe sticker on the back of it, and these were, and and then and kind of the nudge would be the you know people dressed up as as Mo and Joe, reminding you to do it, and the role modelling from the the CEO, etc. And so all these things coming together, explicitly designed, you know, very much designed. Um, uh, would help move this behavior. So that's what we mean by being. Mm-hmm. I mean, the level of an intentionality behind behavioral change is is really, really, really striking. Um, and the, and and I think in the story you just told around Mojo, for example, the multifaceted, multi-pronged approach, multi-variable approach to that nudging that behavioral change. Is is striking because I, I do see a lot of people uh, use single threaded answers like oh how we're going to do this is we're going to have the stickers on the chairs and that's that's going to be the thing um, and the rest of it you know is great great backlog ideas for the future maybe but uh, you know so it's it's striking to me that you took a naturally multi variable having the CEO model this um, you know again I think is is really powerful on its own wouldn't necessarily have led to the outcome that you uh, that you reported. I think that's, yeah, I think that's, that's really completely, that was, that was the very, that's the key insight that you've drawn out there is this multifaceted approach. Mm. Um, and we tried many, many different things and most don't work. And that's the other thing people get wrong is they have an idea and then they stick with it, you know, and they're like, this will work and we just keep trying harder, you know? And so we made sure we measured. We always said, we're not going to do anything unless we can measure it. And if it doesn't work, great. We'll just try the next thing. 
Um, so, so taking Mojo for example, like what kind of measurement did you use there? We simply, I mean, we, we thought hard about it, and it's really hard to measure effectiveness of meetings. <laughs> um, so we decided we were going to go with a perceptive score. You know, so we just surveyed people, and um, we, you know, and we just had control groups of people who were doing Mojo, those who weren't, um, and therefore, you know, we were getting mm. very consistent uh, results of people. Uh, who adopted Mojo to, to feel their, their meetings were more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was quite surprised. I mean, this is some time ago now, and I, I kind of, the, the other thing about beans is they, they come and go, you know, that's okay. And I, I had felt that Mojo had had its pay. And I, and I, I, I could see it waning a little bit because you have to keep making effort to keep it going. And then, you know, there was some feedback from the youngest people in the organization to the CEO saying, what happened to Mojo? We, we need Mojo back. You know, and so this year, you know, since I've left, you know, I know there's a campaign to reinstate Mojo. Mojo is back with a vengeance, so it's still going strong. <laughs> Super Mojo. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, but it's it's really fascinating because, you know, I was talking to a leader recently about uh, transformation and change. And um, one of the first questions, she does a lot of consulting with uh, companies or has in the past. And one of the first things that she would ask is, what are you going to stop doing to create space? Because you you mentioned it's really important as, as part of a successful digital transformation, you have to unleash some capacity uh, in order to, to do change. Um, it's not, you can't just add it on top of what they're already doing. And what strikes me about Mojo is it's such a great insight into, well, we, we know a, a shared uh, source of waste in the organization is in effective meetings. And so uh, going after this programmatically leads to another one of the insights you shared early on, which is you have to make sure the, the organization can has the capacity to actually uh, respond to these new stimuli. Yeah, that's a great them. point. And if, you know, I, I, it's one of the hardest things, isn't it, for most companies to stop stuff because the way a lot of companies set up, you know, you put a business case together and then some poor guy is responsible for delivering the business case and the bonus depends upon it. You know, and so all their efforts are going around like why this business case is really working when, of course, it may, chances are it's not. And therefore, it just makes it hard to stop stuff. And so repositioning that whole thing is another way of, of make, just making it easy to stop stop stuff without people losing their reputation or, the, or their bonus. It's, it's absolutely mm-hmm. key. Otherwise, that, I'd love to speak to that lady because, you know, if you figured out how to do that, then I'm all ears. <laughs> no, I, well, I I agree with you, and I think when when leaders hear that uh, question, "What are you going to stop so that we can start doing more of this?" I think they immediately freak out. Like we can't stop doing anything. It's not like I can stop doing sales or marketing or right, um, which is a, sort of an a, a, an absurd argument just to make the point. But is there what's cool about Mojo is it shows maybe there's a horizontal way to unleash some of that capacity. Um, in a way that uh, that will help us be more efficient, and then also uh, apply some of that capacity towards the transformation that we're seeking. That's really that's really interesting. So uh, one of the stories in, in the book that was particularly compelling was was about DBS's expansion, especially given that the S is in the in the name, uh, but the expansion beyond uh, Singapore and into India. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about the way in which you approach new new customers, creating accounts, and and, and what what growing in India was like, and what what were some of the fun uh, fun discoveries as you as you moved into that market. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's quite a an adventure. That whole story begins because of the fact that we lost out on a, acquiring an Indonesian bank around about 2014, and we fell through at the last hurdle. And I remember the CEO. Called us in on Saturday morning, and we we didn't. We, that was unusual. This is obviously important, and we kind of debated what next. And uh, and the only real answer was to go digital and to go into a market with a digital bank. And we we landed on India for a number of reasons. Um, and what transpired was quite special because it just so happened with the timing that we had all the ingredients to do something quite remarkable. You know, we had built some transformation muscle around human-centered design. We knew how to design efficient operational processes. Um, we knew through our works with innovation how to work with, you know, startups who are bringing latest technology. And all that learning from the previous years just kind of came together in this offering. And the other secret ingredient was, we, and we made a conscious decision that we would have a separate team we would staff it with 50% of our best people from the bank 
and 50% from entrepreneurs and designers. And, and, and when we went to India and we said we are, we're going to give ourselves this ambition of being able to open an account through a mobile phone in 90 seconds or less, 100% of the bankers said it can't be done and 100% of the non-bankers said it could be done. Right? And so that was the first positive tension that kind of happened. And without that, we would have failed because everybody said it couldn't be done. And by mm-hmm. working with the regulators, by having really clever partnerships with, with, with a coffee shop chain in India, we figured out how to create this app that in 2016, think about that's quite an early year, we could mm-hmm. open an account in India in 90 seconds. You know, we couldn't do it in Singapore. You know, and we took great delight in reminding the regulator in, in Singapore that we'd be able to do this in India, but not in Singapore, which, uh, which led to a few changes, I would like to think. Um, and so, um, you know, that was quite, quite, quite something. But of course, you know, as you go into new markets, you know, and we hadn't been ready for the size of India, you know, mm. um, and we were remarkably successful at growing customers rapidly, and that brought some challenges that we, we just weren't ready for. So like any, any other startup, if you like, we had, had a rocky journey, um, mm-hmm. but it was. But you know, I, I remember the day we launched, and uh, kind of 50% of the bank, other banks in India called the, uh, the regulator and said, you know, how come you've let them do this? This is breaking all the regulation. And the other 50 called us and said, how come the regulator let you do this? You know, it's because of have been working with the regulator. It's absolutely fine. But it was a, quite a special moment. <laughs> I, I can I can only imagine uh, some of the some of the bumps in that that road for sure. But that is uh, I love the way that you described the starting point. That you know all the all the digital folks are like yes we can do this, and all the all the bankers are like there's no way because that is that is usually where you need to start. Um, that's where that's where innovation is going to happen. And and your description of creative tension that's that's uh, or the point of productive tension I think you said you called it yeah that's, which is great. So one more question, uh, and this will be a, this this will be our concluding question. And, and I, before I do this, I want to say thank you so much, Paul, for for being here and and this conversation. Um, it really is a remarkable journey, and so many nuggets and insights. I think anyone thinking about digital transformation um, can benefit from. So this is this is really great. And also for our audience, uh, we will be following up with a recording uh, for everyone who joined, um, so you can keep an eye out for that. And Paul, I just want to ask you, you know, where, where, can, where can people go to find out more about you and about, about the book? Well, uh, I guess that point is my website, which very creatively is called uh, paulcobbin.com. I, I, there's a blog there and there's links to books and other things. I also hang out in LinkedIn a lot, so if you just want to reach out on LinkedIn, I'm always happy to uh, uh, link up with fellow-minded people and learn from other people driving transformation. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much. And just for everyone, um, that is uh, Paul Coburn with uh, two Bs. C-O-B-B-A-N. So thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate your your insights here. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a joy. Thank you. It was, it was a lot of fun. This has been an episode of The Innovation Engine, a podcast from 3Pillar Global. 3Pillar is a digital product development and innovation partner that helps companies compete and win in the digital economy. To learn more about 3Pillar Global and how we can help you, visit our website at 3PillarGlobal.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.